Thanks for joining us for this message from Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. We pray that you are blessed by it. If you'd like to know more about Shades Valley and its ministries, you can visit us at shadesvalley.org. The scripture for today's sermon is Ruth chapter 1, and I'll be reading verses 1 through 5. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malan and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpha, Orpa, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malan and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. So, Father, we are grateful for all that you're doing in our midst. Just, we worship and praise you for all we've just already seen this morning. Through the baptismal waters being stirred, news of how you're working and moving all around the world. And so we pray, we pray that you would move and work right here, right now in this room, in our lives, through your word, like you've promised to do. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, and by our spirit, amen. So if you haven't had a chance, I do invite you to open your Bibles to Ruth chapter one, and you may ask yourself, why Ruth? Well, the first seven words of the book should explain that, Ruth chapter one and verse one. In the days when the judges ruled. If you haven't been with us, we literally just finished a series going through the book of Judges. And Ruth takes place during that dark period of Israel's history. So Judges and Ruth, they they go together. But not just chronologically, like on a timeline, they go together theologically. If you remember as we went through Judges, we we, we talked about how at the heart of Judges, there was constantly this two-pronged point being made. Theologically, Judges was a warning, a warning to us of how God's people spiral down into darkness. And Ruth, Ruth shows us how to not do that. It equips us to be able to hold on to the light of God's love amidst the dark. It equips us to be able to hold on to hope. Judges not only was a warning of how God's people spiral down into darkness, it also was a witness. It bore witness to the fact that there is a light, the light of God's love in the gospel, that no darkness can conquer. Ruth shows us how to see that. Like when you're in the dark, how do you see that unconquerable light of God's love so that you don't spiral down into the darkness, so that you cling to it and hold on to hope? Ruth is designed to show us exactly that, which is why we read in the days when the judges ruled. Like in the days of deepest darkness, that's precisely when the light of Ruth shines. 
The light shines. That's a it's actually, if you looked on the back of your bulletin, that's actually the title I've given to this entire series, The Light Shines. I stole, I stole those words straight out of the Gospel of John, chapter 1 and verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot conquer it. That is the truth that's at the heart of this book. Ruth wants us to see that, to believe that. Shades, Ruth is good gospel good news, that, that no matter what darkness you find yourself in, the light shines. It shines even there. Ruth is here to help us see that and to hold on to hope. It does that by taking us into all sorts of places and showing us, yes, the light of God's loving faithfulness shines even there. This book, it, uh, it unfolds kind of like a play with various scenes and settings. And so over four weeks, we're going to walk through four chapters and we're going to look at four settings, the famine, the field, the floor, and the finale. In each of those places, we will see the same thing. We will see the light of God's faithful love. This morning, we're going to start with the darkest and hardest of those places, the famine. Look at Ruth chapter 1 and verse 1. Let's read the whole thing. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Okay, so I know I've made the book of Ruth sound like it's going to be a breath of fresh air. Um, like after the darkness of Judges, and it will be, it will be, but thematically, Ruth begins where we saw Judges end. So Judges, remember, was a downward descent into the dark, like that's where it ended. Ruth starts in the dark. Like, like I promise, I promise that even though it starts there, its purpose, even there, is to shine a light on God's faithful love even there in the dark, so that we might hold on to hope in the dark days of our judges-like world. Ruth starts in the dark. A famine has hit the promised land, which has to feel particularly ironic to anybody who lives in the city of Bethlehem. Does anyone know what Bethlehem means? Beit is the Hebrew word for house. Lachem is the Hebrew word for bread. It literally means house of bread. And this bread house is bare. And so we see a family of four leave. Elimelech with his wife Naomi and their sons, Milan and Kilion. And they head for Moab, which is kind of weird because historically there's bad blood between Moab and Israel. So like why they go there, we don't really know. I got some theories. I'll discuss those over coffee with you. But at the end of the day, the thing we know for sure is that they go there to seek relief. Their stomachs are hungry. But unfortunately, Moab is going to offer no satisfaction. Look at verse 3. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. She was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. Ooh, maybe some hope. The name of one was Orpah and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, no kids in those 10 years, and both Malon and Kilion died so that the woman, that's Naomi, 
She's called the woman right here to emphasize her social status upon the death of every male in her family. She is going to be a widow who in this society would be pushed to the margins and left destitute. The woman was left without her two sons and her husband. First, there's a famine of food. Now there's a famine of family. Like Naomi's got an empty stomach in the present, and she's got an empty future. She, she is sha'ar. That's the Hebrew word used to describe her right here. It means to be left over, to remain. Everyone else has passed on. I'm just the leftovers. It's a word that's meant to make us feel her pain. That death would be better than this darkness that she finds herself in. This is where the book of Ruth begins. And this is the first place it claims to shine forth the light of faithful love. Shades, we desperately need to see it. We need to see faithful love amidst famine. So that we may hold on to hope when we face famines in our own lives. I believe that right here in chapter 1, we see three pictures of faithful love amidst famine. All of them are surprising, and thus all of them hope-giving. See the first one with me. Number one, faithful love for the Lord. Amidst famine, when your life is just emptied of everything and God seems nowhere, what, what, what does it look like to love the Lord faithfully in the midst of that? That's the first picture we see, and it's surprising and hope-giving because I believe we see it through Naomi. Read with me, verse six. Then she, that's Naomi, Naomi arose with her daughters-in-law to return. You're gonna hear that word over and over and over again. Hang on to it. She arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. Why? For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord, all caps, that's Yahweh, that's God's covenant name. She'd heard that Yahweh had visited his people and given them food. Amidst Naomi's darkness, a light shines. The Lord, Yahweh, the covenant God, he apparently is keeping his covenant that he made with his people. He has visited them. In the Old Testament, that always means he's showing up to show judgment or to show grace. And right here, it's clearly grace. This is happening in the dark days of the judges. When what we saw as we walked through judges was the time period in which the people deserved nothing but judgment. And often, judgment came through invading forces or maybe like a famine like right here. And yet again and again and again throughout Judges, we saw God pour out his grace. Even when the people didn't repent, he would rescue them anyway. And Naomi hears Yahweh, the covenant God, is keeping his covenant. He has visited his people to pour out grace upon them, and he has filled their fields with food. Famine's over. And what does Naomi do? She sets out in faith. She gets up, 
And in faith upon what she's heard about the action of the Lord, in faith she returns to the promised land. That word, returns, the Hebrew word shuv, it's the theme of chapter 1. Like you'll see it a lot in your English Bibles, but in Hebrew, 12 times from verse 6 onward, nearly every verse, twice in some, shuv, return. It's going to show up in one form or another. It's, it's a word that's often used for repentance. When I've wandered from the Lord and I've sinned, I, 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 return to, I turn and I return to him. I don't think that's what it means right here with Naomi. I'm not sure that she's repenting. I'm not sure that she even has anything to repent for. But I do know she's returning because of her faith in the Lord. I hear that he's done something, and I believe it, and I'm going to live by it. She returns because of her faith in the Lord, which is just insane. After all, she's lost. She hasn't lost her faith. Amidst famine, she returns. This is what faithful love for the Lord looks like. Amidst famine, when I've got nowhere else to go, I don't turn away from him. I turn towards him. I return to him. I embrace him. This is what faithful love for the Lord looks like amidst famine. But, but, shades, this is only part of the picture. And it's only part of the picture, and it's, it's actually, it's the rest of the picture that, that makes it truly powerful. Because if I'm honest, right now, Naomi seems kind of unrelatable to me. Like, if we stop right here and assume this is all that happens and all that goes on, Naomi, she's kind of like the the lady version of Job right here in the Bible, she loses everything. And just like we see Job do in Job 1 and, or in Job 1 and 2, he, he still clings to the Lord and he worships him. He says, the Lord gave and the Lord take it away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That looks like what Naomi's doing right here. And I'll be honest, I can't really relate to that. Which is why I'm so glad that the book of Job doesn't end after chapter 2 and our story doesn't end after verse 6. We see the rest of the picture of what faithful love for the Lord amidst famine looks like as we continue reading. And we see it not just through Naomi's actions, but through her words. So look at verse 8. So she's gotten up to go back, return to the promised land. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go, return. Return each of you to her mother's house, and may Yahweh deal with kindly hang on to that word. May Yahweh deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May Yahweh grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of your husband. She's releasing them to go back home, to to remarry, to have a future and, and a hope. So she kisses them goodbye. Then she kissed them And they lifted up their voices and wept. Again, right here, we see Naomi's faith as she speaks a blessing over her daughters-in-law. May the Lord deal kindly with you. It's the Hebrew word chesed. It is the most theologically rich word, I think, in all of Scripture. You will most often see it uh, translated in your Bible as uh, loving kindness or steadfast love or what I'm saying this morning, faithful love. It's the word that's used to describe God's covenant love for his 
people, his faithful, never giving up, constantly clinging, restless, relentless love. Naomi still believes that he's that kind of God with that kind of love, but not for her. That's why she asks her daughters-in-law to return to their former homes. Because if you'll go back to your former homes, there's a chance you'll get married, there's a chance you'll have a family, there's a chance you'll have a future. There's hope for God to show his hesed towards you, his loving, kind, his faithful love, but it's got to be away from me. Because clearly his faithful love is not for me. Like It's almost like she thinks she's cursed. And can you blame her? Famine hits her home that's named the house of bread. Husband dies. Sons die. No future generations. Everything and everyone connected to her seemingly turns to dust and death. So She's like, I still believe in the faithful love of the Lord, but you've got to go away from me in order to experience it. Her daughter-in-laws, they try to argue with her if you, if you keep reading And Naomi, she just keeps listing off reasons why they have no hope if they go with her. And the capstone of her argument comes in verse 13. Look at it. No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of Yahweh has gone out against me. Naomi looks at everything that's happened, and she can only come to one conclusion. God is my adversary. He's he's against me. Can't even necessarily figure out why. Maybe she's going through reasons why. We should have never left and gone to Moab. We should have never done these things. Maybe she's trying to come up with her. Maybe she has no idea, but whatever it is, this is what she concludes. God is against me. Shades, shades, she still believes, she still believes Yahweh is the covenant God of faithful love. She has said so. She still has faith when he moves in favor of his people. That's why she's going home. But everything in her personal life makes it seem like none of that is true for her. And she's wrestling. You feel the tension? Her actions demonstrate faith in God. Her words demonstrate faith in God. And at the same time, she struggles and she wrestles with the fact that what she believes to be true of God, that he's a covenant God of faithful love, it's clashing with what's happening in her life. There's a dissonance between what I believe and what I experience. Can you see Naomi's wrestling? Can you feel it? Like so many people want to simplify Naomi right here. They want to simplify her story. They either want to make her a saint of like stalwart faith with a stiff upper lip who who trusts God without ever faltering amidst this famine, or others see her as nothing but a bitter old woman who has lost her faith. I mean, is that not kind of what she sounds like in verse 13 or even more so when you get to the end of the chapter? Look down at the end of the chapter. In verse 19, she actually gets back to Bethlehem. Her former friends see her and can barely recognize her. They're like, is this Naomi? Look at what she says. Verse 20. She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Naomi means pleasant or lovely. Don't call me pleasant. Call me Mara which means bitter. 
for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and Yahweh, Yahweh has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when Yahweh has testified against me? The Almighty has brought calamity upon me. People will read that and they'll say, see, Naomi's just a bitter old lady. I submit to you that Naomi is wrestling. She is wrestling with God amidst life's complexities. It is clear to me in this chapter that she has faith in Yahweh. We've seen that in her words and her actions especially in her words about faithful love. Even right here at the end of the chapter, it's clear to me in her words that she has faith and believes in who Yahweh is. Her words are saturated in her belief in God's sovereignty. She believes Yahweh is sovereign over everything that is happening to her. And that, that belief is the very thing that makes it seem like his faithful love is not true for her. If if he's sovereign over everything that's happened, why doesn't he do anything about it? She's wrestling. You ever do this? When the truth of God's sovereignty and the truth of God's love collide in your life with great dissonance. I believe God's sovereign. I believe that he loves me. And I don't see any evidence of that in anything that I'm experiencing. So you cry out with words a heck of a lot like Naomi's. This is a cry that comes not from a place of unbelief, but from a place of belief. I believe you're sovereign. And that hurts right now. Because you're not doing what I want you to do. Shade, sovereignty is the truth that so often can cause us to hurt in our lives, but it is also the truth that simultaneously gives us hope. Because if God is sovereign over my suffering, then it means he can keep every promise he's ever made when he says that my suffering will not win and he will bring it to an end. And so I wrestle. And so does Naomi. Shades, this, this is what faithful love for the Lord looks like amidst famine. This is what it sounds like. You ever sat with a saint who's suffering? And one moment they are extolling how great God is, and the next they are crying out with questions. Just read the Psalms. This is what it sounds like. This is what faithful love for the Lord looks like amidst famine. It looks like wrestling openly and honestly. I don't know if you find that surprising, but I pray you find it encouraging and hope-giving. Faithful love for the Lord amidst famine in your life. It doesn't look like having a stiff upper lip and a stoic faith that just says, well, God is good, and so I'm just going to put my head down and march on. Nor does it look like deconstructing my faith and walking away in total bitterness. No, faithful love for the Lord looks like being honest about what I believe and about what I'm experiencing and wrestling. Dr. Mark Ginolette, who is debatably one of my favorite people on the planet to listen to talk about the Bible and Jesus. I could do it all day long. He's he's my former Old Testament professor. He's preached here a couple of times, and the last time he was here, he unpacked this truth for us with a picture I'd never heard before. And it is imprinted on my soul. It's a picture from Genesis 32. 
In Genesis 32, you get this really weird passage where Jacob wrestles with God. And God wounds Jacob's hip so that for the rest of his life, he's going to walk with a limp. But Jacob hangs on and he refuses to let go until God blesses him. And God does. How? By changing Jacob's name. What does he change it to? Anybody know? Israel. And here's the deal. God's not just giving that name to Jacob. He's giving it to all his people. Because from then on, all of his people will be known as Israelites. Even in the New Testament, everyone who puts faith in Jesus is referred to as the true Israel. Do you know what the name Israel means? One who wrestles with God. That's what God names his people. Those who wrestle with me, even, even if they think that I'm being presented as their adversary, even if holding on to me results in wounds that make them limp for the rest of their life, they refuse to let go because they know I'm the source of all blessing. And that story shades from Genesis 32, it becomes a picture of what it means to be a faithful member of the people of God. One who faithfully loves the Lord is one who wrestles with God and refuses to let go, even when it hurts and God seems like my adversary. I hold on to him and his promises while being honest about the hurt. I don't hide the limp. This is Naomi. This is what faithful love for the Lord looks like amidst famine. It looks like wrestling. That gives me hope. I hope that it gives you hope. Still, there is more for us to see here, Shades. The second picture of faithful love amidst famine is also surprising and hope-giving. Number two, number two, faithful love for one another. Seen what it looks like to faithfully love God amidst famine? What does it look like to faithfully love one another? This picture, it's surprising and it's hope-giving because we see it through Ruth. It doesn't surprise you if you're familiar with the picture of Ruth, but uh, the story of Ruth, but that, that's because you're too familiar with it. Ruth is a Moabitess. This is blowing the Israelites' mind that she is going to be presented as one of the most faithful pictures of love in this book. I mean, and honestly, it's going to be really surprising to any Israelite as they read chapter one, because honestly, up to this point, Ruth hasn't seemed all that important. Like, we've barely talked about her thus far. In fact, based upon the beginning of this book and the end of this book, some people make an argument that it should be titled Naomi. I mean, out of the primary characters in this drama, Ruth is the one who's got the least amount of lines. But her few words most powerfully put on display faithful love. We see that through her opening speech in chapter 1. So back to this scene with Naomi trying to get Ruth and Orpah, her daughters-in-law, to go back home, go back to Moab. And, and to truly feel the weight of Ruth's response right here, you've got to first hear all the reasons Naomi tells her she should go back home. So in verse 11, Naomi says, Ruth, Orpah, y'all need to go back home because I'm not pregnant right now with more sons who could grow up for you to marry. Now that just sounds weird. 
But Naomi, what she's doing right here, she's referring to an Israelite custom called leveret marriage. Basically, if a woman's husband died and she had no children, then her husband's closest kin, next of kin, usually a brother that was unmarried, would marry her and have children on the deceased husband's behalf. It was a way of securing that family's future. It was a way of making sure that this woman didn't end up as a widow on the margins of society, destitute on everyone's on the underside of everybody's boot. There are actually lots of good reasons for this law, even though it's really, really strange to us. That's fine. All we need to know right now is that's what would be expected in Israel. And Naomi's saying, Ruth, it's not a possibility. To drive that point home in verse 12, she says, it won't ever be a possibility because I'm too old to get remarried. And then she caps it off by saying this, if, if I should say that I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait until they are grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? Like she's basically saying, Ruth, Orpah, even best case scenario won't work. In other words, Naomi is saying, I have no future hope. That's literally what she said in verse 12. If I should say that I have hope. In other words, I don't. I don't have any hope. And Orpah and Ruth, if you come with me, you will be hopeless too. So in verse 14, we read this. Then they, Orpah and Ruth, lifted up their voices and wept again. It's clear that they love their mother-in-law, Naomi. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. It's a kiss goodbye, which is not bad. Orpah is not being presented to us as a slacker here. She's being presented to us as the one who does what's normal. Her response is not surprising. Is what most of us would do, which is what makes Ruth's response that much more shocking. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Devak clung. You might be familiar with this word from the oft-quoted Genesis 2.24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast. Devak cling to his wife. In other words, it is commonly a covenant word of commitment, a commitment that refuses to let go. It's what Naomi is doing with the Lord. I'm wrestling with you. I refuse to let go. And it's what Ruth does with Naomi. She is loving Naomi with chesed, with faithful love that won't let go. Ruth says so. Look at verse 16. Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord, may Yahweh, may Yahweh do so to me. And more also, if anything but death parts me from you. I'm willing to bet that you've heard those words before. Most likely at a wedding. Because that's the kind of covenant vow this is. Ruth stares down a hopeless future that leads to death. And she says, Naomi, I'm going there with you. 
I will sacrifice my future. And not only that, I'll sacrifice my entire past, my former manner of life. She basically pledges, she doesn't basically, she does, she pledges to become an Israelite. Your people, my people, your God, Yahweh, my God. She's being more faithful than most Israelites we've seen during the time period of the judges. Most Israelites during this time period are just fine with having Yahweh and setting other gods right alongside him. She says, no, just Yahweh. My past, gone. Your people will be my people, your God, my God. And even when you die, I won't go back home. Where you're buried, I will be buried. Shades, this is Hesed, faithful love that refuses to let go on full display. Ruth lays down her life to love Naomi. And I submit to you that is precisely the kind of love Naomi needs to see. This is the kind of love we all need to see amidst famine. We all need, in those moments when it feels as if God is our adversary, we need someone to enter our world to literally be his hands and his feet, to put flesh on his faithful love and demonstrate it to us. Shades, you have the opportunity to be that for every brother and sister around you who is suffering. Never downplay, never downplay loving others while they weep. I'll, I'll talk with many of you as you sit with people, call people, and I'll say thank you for being there. And the instinct is to downplay it. Maybe that's just a southern thing. I don't know, or a modern thing. I really didn't do anything. I was just there. Yeah, that's the point. You were there as an ambassador of the living God, putting flesh and bone on his love that that person can't see right now any other way. This is this is one of the reasons, one of the top reasons I love, I love, I love being a pastor. I treasure being invited into the hard, difficult places of suffering and sitting with people amidst their questions, amidst their pain, amidst their wrestling. I love sitting with them and just keep clinging to them. It's a demonstration of what God himself is doing in that very moment. Shades, this is what we all need amidst famines in our lives. We need someone to be the hands and feet of God's faithful love. I truly believe that's what we are seeing through Ruth right here. This is God's hesed on display. Naomi can't see it, but he is sending it. It's coming through. This is God's faithful love for Naomi being mediated through the means of Ruth. This is the third and final picture of faithful love amidst famine that we need to see, Shades. Number three, the Lord's faithful love for us. See what it looks like to love the Lord faithfully amidst famine, what it looks like to faithfully love each other. And amidst all of that, 
What's actually going on is God is at work loving us. The main character of this book is not Ruth or Naomi. It's not even going to be Boaz that we meet next week. The main character is God. He, he is the main character of this whole book from start to finish. And right here we get to see him pour out his faithful love. Shades, this is the most surprising thing to see in Ruth chapter 1. And it is the thing that fills us most with hope. Even as Naomi is, is struggling, even as she's wrestling, God is not rejecting her. He's actually lavishing his love upon her. A New Testament scholar, um, Mary Wilson Hanna, uh, she says it really, really well. She says this. She says, the Lord's fundamental posture toward Naomi hinges not on the perfection of, Naomi, of Naomi's turning, but on the perfection of the one to whom she turns. It is not the quality of Naomi's faith that determines her position as God's beloved daughter, but the object of her faith. Not even suffering-induced skepticism can separate Naomi from God's love through the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, in the midst of her wrestling, God is faithfully loving her. Shades, that's precisely what we see in verse 22, God's faithful love for Naomi. Look at it, last verse of the passage. So Naomi returned, and Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. I read that, and I just want to say like Naomi, don't you see? You're not actually returning empty. That's what she said in the verse right before this one. Verse 21. Yahweh has brought me back empty. She'd experienced a famine of food. She'd experienced a famine of family. So call me Mara, call me bitter. But in the very next verse, verse 22, our author doesn't honor her wish for a name change at all. He continues to call her Naomi as if to say she's not done wrestling. The Lord will heal her heart. She will know pleasant loveliness again. See, he's already filling everything that's been emptied. It's the beginning of the barley harvest. Bethlehem, which had been barren, it's about to be the house of bread again. Naomi's famine of food, it's about to be filled. I wonder if the same could be true concerning her famine of family. Shades, it is. It is. Because God has not only brought barley to Bethlehem, he has also brought Ruth. And she will be the means by which God will end Naomi's famine of food and family. We are told God's the one doing this. He's the one lavishing his love in this way, filling up everything that was empty. We are only told twice in this entire book about God's direct action. Oh, he acts a lot more than that, as we will see, but we're only told twice about something he specifically does. We were told first in chapter 1 and verse 6, we were told that he brings an end to the famine of food. We will be told in the end, in chapter 4 and verse 13, that he brings an end to the famine of family. God does both of those things, and he will do them both through Ruth. Ruth will gather grain to fill Naomi's stomach, Spoiler alert, 
Ruth will get married and she will fill up Naomi's family and future. And not just Naomi's, the nations. This book is going to end with Ruth giving birth to Obed. Obed's going to have a son named Jesse. Jesse's going to be the father of David, Israel's greatest king. The king they so desperately needed during the dark days of the judges. And from that King David will ultimately come Jesus, the king that we so desperately need. God's faithful love right here is not just for Naomi. It is for all of his people. It's for me and for you. Shades, do do you see Naomi is not empty like she thinks she is. And neither are we. Naomi's not empty right here. Right in the midst of the darkness of famine. God is already giving Naomi everything she needs. She's giving giving her Ruth through whom famine will end in food and family. He's already given it to her. She already has it. All of the answers to all of the emptiness. She just can't see it yet. But God is already lavishing his love upon Naomi. He is giving her the satisfaction we saw her seeking all the way down in Moab. He is giving it to her through Ruth. Do you know what Ruth's name means? Satisfaction. Fullness. The very thing Naomi's family went to Moab to seek. It's the very thing they couldn't find, but God himself is bringing into Naomi's life through his own means. Ruth clinging to Naomi. Naomi clinging to God. God clinging to both of them. Shades, do do you see? God is giving Naomi everything she needs. He's doing the same thing for Ruth too. Naomi is the means through which God will fill Ruth's emptiness. She's the means through which Ruth will find a future husband and family. The very chesed that Naomi prayed Yahweh would show to Ruth, he will through Naomi. Do do you see? Do you see this? Uh, Paul House points this out, that both of these women are conduits of God's grace to one another. They can't see it. But God's love is being poured out through both of them to both of them. And we are meant to see that so we will believe it is true for us too. Especially when we can't see it amidst the famines of our own lives. Shades, the book of Ruth, it is here. It is here to help us see the light of God's faithful love to his people amidst the dark. He's trying to help us see and believe the light shines even in famine. Even right now, God, do you see? God is pouring out his love to me, to you, right now, through his word. He's pouring out his love to you through your wrestling. It's his grace empowering you not to let go. Do you see people in your life through whom he is pouring out his love? Are they being his literal hands and feet? Like, Do you see? Do you see his faithful love? Ruth is here to help us see so that we may believe, so that we may return, turn to God and keep wrestling, keep holding on to hope. Because shades, even in the famine, the light shines. Let's pray. Father, I am grateful. I'm grateful 
that your word doesn't ignore the dark but takes us into its depths and proves even there that you are who you are, not in any way that is easy, but in a way that helps us to wrestle with faithfulness. Your word is not glib. It is not trite. It's true, and its waters are deep, and its foundation is firm. Give us eyes to see that you didn't move like you did and do what you did just during the days of Ruth, but you do it now. You're doing it now. To all who find themselves in darkness. I pray that Ruth helps us see and believe the light shines. I pray this in the name of the light, your son, Jesus Christ. courage. Hold on to what is good. Honor all men, strengthen the faint-hearted, support the weak, help the suffering, and share the gospel. Love and serve the Lord in the power of the Holy Spirit, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with us all. Amen.